that passion to just get better each show that we were that when we were doing our own little plays in LA that passion to just do the next show better than you did the last one that that's still there and i feel like we still live by that ethos that we want to produce something better this time than the last show you're listening to the rogue local a podcast exploring southern oregon's rogue valley its residents current events local businesses and outdoor recreation Support for the Rogue Local is provided by Soul Smile Dental. I'm Ryan Cavell, and on today's show, I talked to Rick Robinson, who owns the Oregon Cabaret Theater, along with his wife, Valerie Rochelle. We talk about how the Cabaret Theater actually got started with a chandelier, of all things, the origins of their famous Dick Hay Pie, and how Rick's dream as a theater student back at UC Davis was simply to do theater in Ashland. While Rick and Valerie are relatively new owners of the Oregon Cabaret Theater, the institution has been providing entertainment and fine dining in Southern Oregon for over 30 years. Ashland's first Baptist church, built in 1911 and long known around town as the Old Pink Church, was reimagined as a theater and serves as the venue for their high-energy musicals. Starting with 30 performances in 1986, the first year open, the theater has steadily grown and now puts on more than 270 performances throughout their year-round season. Rick's not a native Oregonian, but he did marry an Oregon girl. The pair met doing summer stock theater in Santa Rosa, California. Valerie, or Val, as you'll hear Rick call her, is originally from Eugene, and the long-term plan was to hopefully get back to Oregon, but the Oregon Cabaret Theater is really what made that dream a reality. Val had directed a show. Uh, Jim Giancarlo hired her to direct uh, Winter Wonderettes, and that was, I think, late 2012. And uh, she loved it. She'd call me on the phone because I was living in L.A. Uh, she'd call me on the phone and just say, man, it's like a storybook being here and working at this place and this theater. And she'd rave about it. Um, but we didn't know that, that you know, three or three years down the line that we, we would be running it ourselves. Uh, she joked with Jim about Hey, if you ever wanted to sell this place or, and that sort of joking turned into later a very serious, Hey, I am selling. Are you interested? Can I meet with you? And I think originally I was resistant. And I think part of that was because when I picture dinner theater, you know, I've been doing theater for a long time. When I picture dinner theater, it was something, I don't know, it was something cheap and the theater was second class. And when I, when I visualize it, I visualize that scene from Soap Dish where it's Kevin Klein saying or having to pass the salt to the audience member. So I, I wasn't enamored of the idea, but I came uh, to meet with Jim and go over financials and see the theater for the first time. I took a trip over the hills of uh, from Utah where Val was working in Logan, just those like blasted no man's land hills all mm-hmm. the way over into Ashland, Oregon, arriving at like 2 a.m., uh, met with Jim uh, got to see Ain't Misbehaving in 2014. And it's just, it's just a magic place. You step in and it's like this old school charm. And I was just, I instantaneously went from, I don't know that I want to get into this to like, we got to grab this thing with both hands. I called her and I remember clearly I was driving away and 
all my resistance had melted. I knew it. I called her and I said, we got to, we got to do this thing. We got to grab wow. it with both hands. We got to write a business plan. Like now that I'm invested, let's not, let's not let someone else get it. So, um, and it sounds like you had some experience running a theater before. Yeah. My wife and I, uh, we were part of a group of six people who ran a theater company called lucid by proxy in Los Angeles. And it was, it was fun. It was just like, we do new work. We did a lot of my own plays. Uh, we pushed the boundaries. It was this tiny theater that sat 40 people, uh, that we worked in and we just, you know, we were babies, but we learned how to like tell stories and the hard way too, from nothing, tell stories from nothing. And, uh, in a lot of ways it's very different because to us, you know, we had day jobs and we weren't, we weren't hyper concerned with the bottom line. Like, yeah, it'd be better if the show didn't lose money, but, uh, it's different to go from that environment where it's really mostly about the art to an environment where I have 30 people who work for me and servers who rely on the, the cabaret, uh, for a living. And so, yeah, I want to do shows that people enjoy because, uh, you know, the, the cabaret needs to be a counterpoint to what OSF is offering. So I want my shows to be fun. I want my audiences to have a good time. And that sort of mindset is a little different than what I came from, but casting shows, telling stories, recruiting good actors, treating people well, that's all things we learned running, running our little theater in LA. And I, I don't think we, I don't think we'd be, where we are if it wasn't for those experiences. So do you think that the passion that you had when you were working with that smaller theater, do you think you've been able to retain that scaling up like this? I, I do. I do. I mean, it, like I said, it's different, but the passion for telling good stories, even in the framework of a show like noises off the passion for getting every detail, right. That's still very much there. Like Val and I, we wake up in the morning charged I mean, we do. We wake up in the morning charged to to see what we can do. Because you look at a show like when we first started, you know, musical musicals, and then you look at a show that we're doing in the early summer this year. Once we've pushed the boundaries on what we can do in set design now, we're asking, we're hiring outside designers. They're building models. They're working with lighting designers very early, so that we're creating these cool effects where we have light box windows and we have lighting that's really been built to work for the set. And I think the level of craft, not just in terms of the actors we've been getting, and, and I think people who've been to the cabaret this year have seen Million Dollar Quartet and Once can attest to the fact that we have really talented actors. But the other side as well, we've been hiring in really talented artisans on the other side uh, as well, set designers, sound designers, lighting designers. So that passion to just get better each show that we were that when we were doing our own little plays in L.A., that passion to just do the next show better than you did the last one, that that's still there. And I feel like we still live by that ethos that we want to produce something better this time than the last show. And so now we have our Avenue Q actors in the building. And once again, we have to, we have to try to put on a show that's grander and better than, than our previous shows. So can you tell me more about how the Oregon Cabaret Theater got started here in Ashland? Yeah, so I mean, it's a really cool place, and it has a very cool origin story. Uh, Craig Hudson was a graduate student. He was working. He was going to school near Pennsylvania. He got the salvage rights this old movie house in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, and he he found this great old chandelier, 
and he knew he wanted it for a cabaret theater that was in his mind's eye that he would he would build out at some point in the future. And, you know, he, he was working at Southern Oregon State, uh, now SOU, uh, but didn't have a home for his, his chandelier, which he had for a while now. He's now in Ashland. Uh, the pink church goes up for sale. The old pink church was, it was a Baptist church. It closed its doors, so the Baptist church moved. Uh, then Mark Anthony Hotel bought the building, was using it for like mattress storage. So you had this sort of derelict eyesore pink building right down the street from OSF. Craig purchased it um, and went to work just reinventing it, like changing uh, changing it into a theater, you know, building it so the sight lines work, um, restoring the windows. And they, they did a thing which I think a lot of theater people do, which is we want to do a show. And so even as the theater was being built, he got a group of people together, including Jim Giancarlo, who was uh, the artistic director for a very long time, including Michael Chapman and other people I'm forgetting. He got a group together to do a show and they put, they put a, they put out posters. They started rehearsals. The the thing was being built as they were doing it on the night. They were going to open Dames at Sea was, which was the very first show ever done at the cabaret theater. <laughs> Craig and Craig will tell you. And Jim, when I met him, will tell you like they were cutting tablecloths, 20 minutes before people came in Craig was up in the rafters like making sure the lights would work it's just it's one of those things where you really don't know that it's going to go off until the lights come up and they open dames at sea and suddenly there's this new theater in Ashland and I just it's really cool how the thing grew because it was just people uh like we did in LA it was just people who want to do theater together and they made this space and they made this theater and it grew over time and the level of productions increased and they started to be able to pay actors professionally and bring people in from other places and it's just really cool how the thing has organically grown over time and both Valerie and I my wife Valerie who's the artistic director we feel that sense of the community loves the cabaret and we feel like that sense of responsibility that we need to do well by it. You know, we, we need to honor its history and honor its future by continuing to make shows that are really, really great. Yeah, I can see that. I love that story, especially about the chandelier. And now that you mention it, being a graphic designer, I immediately thought of the logo. How's yeah. the chandelier? Yeah. Like when that, the logo is something we changed when we took over, uh, we felt like we needed an updated look and we went to, Lucas Blair, who's been an actor with us and is my director of marketing. And we're like, we need a logo. Here's what we sort of wanted to feel, old school elegance. We had a logo that was a top hat. Uh, and Julie Gerwell, who was our general manager at the time, thought it looked a little melodrama-y. We went back to him. He had a circular table with chairs around it that said Oregon Cabaret Theater. And then he went to the chandelier look. And as soon as we saw the chandelier look, because it's the iconic feature of the of the place, we loved it, and we went immediately with that. And then we had to decide between maroon and purple. And now that we're, <laughs> we've so embraced that sort of maroon look in our logo and everything, it's weird to think back how sort of knife's edge the decision between that and the sort of elegant purple was. But, it, you know, it, I really like our, our logo. I think it suits the place. Definitely. So for listeners who've never been to the cabaret, what can they expect if they see a show? Um, well, I think you can expect a really good time. I mean, we, from the moment we greet you to when we seat you, we feel like the, the experience starts when you come in the door. So we have volunteer ushers. will take you into our, 
our beautiful old space. They'll they'll seat you. You'll get a menu. If you've made a dinner reservation, you can eat a full dinner before the show. I think one of the things that's cool about the cabaret is that, you know, a lot of times you're going to see a Shakespeare play, you're in town, you're going to see a play, and you sort of have to be nervous during dinner because is my food going to get here? Do we have enough time to pay the bill? There's like, where's my waiter? You're sort of nervous about it. Well, we know you're there to see the show. We know we're going to get you seated on time. You can just sit back and know that you're taken care of and you can see the play in the same place you're eating dinner. So uh, I think people can expect a good meal and a good show. That's like we pride ourselves on all ends of the business. And the restaurant is something under my purview. And uh, it's something that's part of the experience that we take pride in. Yeah, it that's very unique to have both of those things going on at the same time, serving a large gourmet meal and putting on a show at the same time. How, how yeah. do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, through the hard work of, of others really is, is how we do it. The servers have to be really responsive and fast. Chef has to prepare, you know, we cap out dinners at 70, but there are nights where he'll have to cook 70 dinners in a 40 minute window. So it's not like a normal restaurant where, yeah, you're cooking 70 meals, but they're coming in staggered. Right. Like exactly. they'll flood back to the kitchen. So a lot of about is, is about smart menu design. I mean, we cook the meat to order, but a lot of the things are, are being plated very, very rapidly. And I think it's just having a lot of bodies on hand to get the job done, having smart menu design and just very good people is how we accomplish sort of getting all those dinners out, uh, at, you know, when they're needed. Has anybody had to pass the salt to a diner? <laughs> uh, no, no. Although we, we do have our funny audience stories, but no. I'm That's... sure. <laughs> so I saw your head chef, Chris McSevney is from Scotland. Are a lot of his dishes influenced by that heritage? I mean, he, he's an interesting guy because he, he grew up in Scotland. He worked in Scotland, you know, started up as a dishwasher and made his way up through the ranks. But then, you know, he worked at you know, French cuisine houses. And he worked in Ireland for a while. And then he worked at the U.S. Virgin Islands and then in the States. So I think he's agile in what he can sort of prepare. And I think I was drawn to him as a chef because of that agility, because we want to sort of embrace, we don't want it to be theme park food, but we want to sort of embrace the show's setting and what the menu's like. So doing a show like Once, it's set in Dublin, Ireland. So Chef brings his experience being a chef in Dublin, Ireland. He puts an Irish stew on the menu with soda bread. Uh, he's got colcan and potatoes as a side to salmon. I mean, the way Chef talks, he's like, I want to use local ingredients, ingredients, but I want it to, I want to have some elements of the show's setting in my menu. And to have a chef who's been sort of all over the world is great because he can do a menu like once. And now we're going to Avenue Q, where, which is set in New York City, and get that sort of hodgepodge cuisine of New York City and design dishes that match that show. I, I, I felt like he was uniquely qualified when he, when he cooked for me and when I interviewed him. Yeah, that's fantastic. I didn't realize that the meals themselves were going to be different based on the show yeah each menu is different and that's that's sort of a new tack that we're taking uh, i mean uh, the menus would change seasonally we'd always have different show menus but we're trying to tack into uh the shows yeah like a cohesive experience yeah exactly yeah, I love yeah. That. like i'm going to see a show set in dublin and i'm going to have traditional irish stew and yeah. soda bread in advance of that and a guinness cake that he learned to make while he was working <laughs> at a place in in dublin I just feel like that's part of your that's part of your experience. 
And I also read that the theater has a particular dessert specialty. Yes, uh, decay pie. When I when I was what interviewing Chef, yeah, when I was interviewing Chef, he's like, "Well, what what are things I need to know?" And I'm like, "Well, whatever you need to make decay pie, because it's <laughs> it's the thing that we'll have customers call up and go, want to come see a show? Do you still do the decay pie? Yes." Great. Three tickets. We're like, do you want to know what show's playing? And they're like, we, we want the pie and I'm sure the show will be great. So uh, what is it, it? I have to know. It is. Um, it's an ice cream pie. It's it's the regular decay pie is vanilla ice cream, peanut butter, like a big stripe of peanut butter in the middle. It's got Oreo cookie crumble as like it's crust and it's got chocolate ganache drizzled, drizzled over it. So wow. it's sort of like it's an ice cream cake, ice cream pie type of experience it's always a big fat slice and people just it's it's the thing people love and so told chef it's like the one thing needs to be on the menu is is decay pie and the decay pie uh i thought when i was reading about it when i was reading about and doing research on the cabaret i didn't understand what the name was i thought maybe it was a dish that you know from the south that people understood what that was but it's not it's a cabaret it's a unique cabaret dish it's named for Richard Hay, who is the set designer at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, who's designed the canon like three times. Uh, so Richard Hay, who who should be known for his brilliance and his set work at OSF over the years, uh, people will go, oh, you're yeah, Richard Hay, Dick Hay like the pie. <laughs> and he's tickled when that happens. Uh, but it was... What Craig, a legacy. Yeah, Craig Hudson brought a dessert over to his place. And uh, back, you know, this must have been 80s, uh, brought a dessert over to one of Richard Hayes' dinner parties, and he loved it and asked him to make it each time he came over. And then when Craig opened the theater with, with Jim and Michael and others, he he put that pie on the menu and called it the Decay Pie. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's been a thing at the cabaret for as long as it's been open. Ah, oh, that's perfect. Yeah. So can you tell me more about uh, your current production? I know you mentioned it once. Um, yeah, and maybe uh, the other upcoming shows. This absolutely, year. yeah. So Once is playing right now. Uh, it's this beautiful. It's not a love story per se, but I think it, it's a show about love. It's a romantic show. Uh, it, was, it was based on a movie that came out, I want to say 98, but I think that, no, it's later than that. Uh it was based on a movie that came out maybe 10 years ago. Uh, it was on Broadway and won the Tony Award for Best Musical in 2012. And I think what's special about it is it features an ensemble of actors who all play their own instruments. So it's the sort of storytelling where the actors who are really involved in the scene come center stage, but the ensemble sort of stays on the periphery and provides orchestration and supports the scene. Uh, so I think it's unique in its storytelling, the music which is by Glenn Hansard and Marquetta Glova is beautiful. And it's just, it's lyrical and it's beautiful and moving. And uh, it doesn't feel extraneous to the story. It feels like it's wrapped into the sinew of the story. The music is such a part of it. Um, and yeah, it's, it's beautiful. It's heartfelt. Um, it was a show we knew we wanted to do because of the cabaret. One of the challenges is, our stage is very small, as you know. Noises off is probably too big of a show for us to take on. <laughs> it was impressive, but uh, you you want to choose shows where the intimacy of our space helps a show, rather than you know you do Oklahoma, 
uh, which OSF is doing a really brilliant production of right now. But you do Oklahoma and you come out and you're like, I'm on the windswept, windswept plains, but you're actually in this little postage stamp <laughs> of a stage. Right. But when you do a show like once where the, the intimacy of the space just enhances the show, those are the plays we're looking for where our space, where our space can be superior to these productions that are done in these giant spaces where you're very far away once is personal it's intimate and our space i think is perfect for it which is why we were drawn to it uh, and then we move from that sort of show to um to avenue q which is very as different as you can be it's a show where uh, it's written by jeff witty who's i think a native of coos bay and uh, he was uh one of the creatives on head over heels which was just at osf uh, avenue q it's a show it's it's uh, it's a raunchy adult puppet show. Uh, we're not supposed to say it's like mm-hmm. certain famous puppet shows that are on educational TV, <laughs> but uh, that's sort of what it is. It's sort of an adult version of that, and the characters deal with sort of real adult situations in the context of this ridiculous puppet show, and it features just great songs like uh, The Internet is for Porn, Everyone's a Little Bit Racist, uh, just all of these really great, fun, witty songs. And it really, uh, we've been upfront with people that it could offend if you come in and sort of are, are worried about that. Yes, it is a show that, that pushes the boundaries on a lot of things. But if, if that doesn't bother you, you're going to love this. You're going to love this play. I've seen the actors there. They arrive today and are rehearsing it. It's going to be so much fun. The puppets are beautiful. Oh, wow. So, do you guys have those commissioned, made specifically for this production, or uh, since it's a popular play, do they get? Yeah, there's there's the. So we didn't. We we went out and Galloway Stevens, who is our associate artistic director and is directing Avenue Q, we gave him sort of a set budget, and then he went out and tried to find the puppets that were perfect for him, and this. Uh, he found these puppets, um, but th- she had done them for production in the Northwest and, uh, they were commissioned for that and she's renting them out and he, he loved them. So contacted her, got her to sort of come down to where, what we really could afford in terms of the puppets. And she just brought them in a truck down today. Like she loves these puppets. She brought them in boxes. <laughs> There's really specific instructions on how to sort of care for them. Cause wow. they're her art pieces. Right. You know what I mean? And so the way we care for them was important to her and they arrived today and they're, they're magnificent. They look like they stepped off of the Muppet show. They're wow. really magnificent puppets. Very cool. I did actually see Avenue Q in Santa Rosa. So oh, yeah? you mentioned Santa Rosa earlier. Yeah. I ended up, I went to Sonoma State and stayed oh, in the cool. area for like nine years. So spent yeah. a lot of time there. <laughs> and yeah, we met doing Summer Stock at uh, Summer Repertory Theater, SRT, which is at the junior college in Santa yeah, Rosa. That yeah. might even be where I saw Avenue Q. I, I can't remember exactly. The it's meeting. possible. Uh, but Val worked there for a long time. Like I was there three summers as an actor. Val was an actor there, then she was a choreographer, and then she sort of got her initial experience as a director working at Summer Repertory Theater. So that remains sort of a special, special place for us. I bet. So do you guys have the acting bug at all anymore? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, it's it's hard to go out and do a show because I, I wear a lot of hats. But that is a hat I'm putting on this year. I'm in Picasso at the La Panagile. So even though I have not stepped onto the stage of the cabaret to date, you will see me if you wow. come out to see Picasso. <laughs> I'm pay- playing Freddie, who is sort of the the uh, 
the business owner who does a lot of work and is worried about his business. So it felt like it felt like a good fitting. (laughs) (laughs) That's been, when does that air? That comes, that's after Avenue Q. So we start rehearsing that in September. And so I'm growing out my, I'm growing out a big mustache for that, which is going to be, which is going to be fun. (laughs) My wife would hate it, but she's the one who wants it for the show. So she (laughs) She can't complain. (laughs) That's great. So on that note, can you tell me more about the actors? Do any of them live locally and have recurring roles or are most from out of the area? Uh, it's, it's always a, it's always a quilt. Uh, it's always a, a patchwork of people we've known from theaters we worked at in the past to people we just raw audition in New York to locals that we've seen work locally and really like. So to use once as an example, um, there's like four actors who just auditioned for us in New York. There are a couple of actors who just submitted to us via uh, a video submission who we then asked to read roles for us and submit via video because it's 2018. And yeah, that's, that's great. That's a thing that can be done in casting now. Right. Uh, there are three locals a- actors in it. Livia Janice, who was a longtime artistic director at Camelot, who was really kind to us when we first moved out here and felt at sea. She was like... Very, very generous. Um, so Livia's in it. She learned how to play accordion to play Baruska. Uh, John Lambie is in it, who's a local who moved here when we first cast him in Cabaret. It's got Haley Forsyth, who's a very talented local actor. So it, it's always a blend, you know, like we don't want to, we love our local actors, but we want to cast them when it's really the right fit for them. And when we don't have someone locally who works for a role, we're, a professional company who pays for travel and housing. So we'll go to New York and see just the absolute uh, best folks. And we, I think we've been really lucky so far this year and just, I mean, I say luck, but it's really the skill of uh, Val, my wife and Jonathan Hoover, who do most of the casting at the cabaret going out and doing research and finding the right people, not just once they do audition, but getting them to audition. You get a list oh, of, really? So, so they're sort like, of uh, recruiting ahead of time. And, yeah. So okay. like you, you put out a call for, okay, we're looking for Maggie in Avenue Q. Or we're looking for Kate Monster in, uh, I said the name of the actor is playing for us. You're looking for Kate Monster <laughs> in Avenue Q. You post it, you post it in a New York call and you get 260 submissions and you can't go to New York and see 260 people. It's this really iconic role. A lot of people want to play it. So then it's Jonathan Hoover's job who's in New York to go through the 260 and go, okay, these are the 20 I want to see based on what you know about their resume, based on what you've seen from them online. So then you pare it down to 20 and then it's the skill of Alan Jonathan to go of these 20, this is our Kate. So it's, it's a, it's, it's a process that's really critical to how our shows come off and it's, it's an art form. And I think so far, like, uh, I know I'm biased, but like, man, they've they've killed it. Our cast for MDQ and once so far this year have been really stellar. So can you tell me more about what goes on behind the scenes? I know that's a really broad question, but I think that, you know, as a lay person, I tend yeah. to focus on the actors and their role. But what about some of the other departments? Well, in addition to, to what you see on the stage, the acting department, we also, every show, we have a person is his job to design the props um drew bank drew brent drew bangs does that for us for for all of our shows uh we have a sound designer whose job it is to make sure the vocals and the instrumentation sound great the clarity of language is there they design the sound effects for the show 
We have a lighting designer. That person's job is to, to create a lighting plot, make sure the show looks and feels and transition in a way that's not heavy handed, but still has each unique scene feel a different way. And I think, uh, Chris Wood, we hired him to do once and M million dollar quartet has done a stellar job of that. And then there's a set designer whose job it is to design how the show looks physically. Uh, and we have that person very early. We're talking, the director's talking to them. What, what do we want the show to feel like? He designs a set, redesigns it, sends us a model. And then from there, once we have the designs, you know, what, what, what the designer wants the show to look like, then it's up to the art, artisans whose job it is to actually build that stuff. So we have Christopher Burkhart, who's our technical director. He gets the plans and the model and generates the set based on that. And, you know, a lot of times there, when the rubber hits the road, you have to make calls to make the thing work. And so he's instrumental in sort of creating the thing. One of the challenges of the cabaret is most theaters have these giant loading doors. So you build a set and you sort of, you know, wheel it in and put it up. Every set that comes into the cabaret comes in through the front door. So they build these sets and everything's got to get broken down into a small enough piece to come in the front door and then be reassembled. And oh, by the way, it has to be done in three days because the show closes and the next one goes into technical rehearsal and actors need to be walking on it within three days. Wow. So CB and his assistant technical director, Nico Hewitt, Chris Hamby, who works with them, they just they just get that thing up. And the the process of that, it's it's really incredible what those guys do. And it's one of those it's again, it's not, you know, you come and you enjoy the the story that the you know the playwrights created and the way the actors have generated it. But I know being on the other side that there's so much involved in the creation of the piece. You know, you have not just the lighting designer, but the people who hang the lights from the ceiling, who climb a ladder that goes 30 feet in the air, hang the lights, focus them. Uh, and that's just the theater side. We're right. also designing menus right. and staffing up and doing everything on the restaurant side as well. So uh, you're seeing the tip of the iceberg and there's a very complex, interesting group that creates the, you know, the, a lot of the stuff that you don't see. I can only imagine. What kind of obstacles does the theater face? Well, we want, one of the obstacles is we need people to be aware of us. And I think that the locals, all people who live here know us and love the cabaret, but you know, we want to get folks who are coming to town to see a Shakespeare show to include us in their itinerary. You know, we're not, uh, you know, we're open Monday nights and we, we want to raise awareness for folks who are coming down from Portland and coming up from the Bay Area and sort of reaching those people is one of my challenges. Again, we have a small stage. I think that that sometimes is an obstacle to create the kind of shows we want to create. We have small dressing rooms. So when we want to do a show like Drowsy Chaperone that has 14 people, we have to cram actors and nooks and crannies of the space that it's not entirely comfortable for the actors to be. So... We have these impediments that we try to get through, but there are challenges to being in this sort of this old building that wasn't built to be a theater. It was built to be a church that was converted to a theater. So there are there are things that, you know, that keep me up at night. And uh, I think those are a few of them. So are any of those um, like the dressing rooms, for example, is it physically possible for you guys to reconfigure or expand or solve some of that space? I mean, it's issue? tough. It's just the dressing room downstairs. There's no more. There's no wall. We already did. There was a shoe closet that we knocked out and created 
two more stations. So I think we've done what we can in just the the physical space. I think mm-hmm. the only other thing we could do is convert uh, prop rooms or lighting storage rooms into functional dressing rooms, but that creates other headaches. Now right. we need storage units and we don't have things conveniently on hand. So right. I think we've pushed dressing room space about as far as we can. Uh, so, yeah. Would you ever move to another location or is that? I think the cabaret, the cabaret is too much. Like the building is too much a part of what the cabaret is. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't, I don't think the business model sort of the space is so unique I think it's such an integral part of what the cabaret is. No, I I would not consider moving. Is there any way that locals can get involved through volunteering or otherwise? Yeah, reach out uh, box office at OregonCabaret.com and say, listen, I want to be a volunteer. Our volunteers don't have to build up. They don't have to volunteer at X number of shows to see the show for free. You volunteer at the cabaret, you get to see the show for free that night. You get a free dessert. So I feel like volunteering at the cabaret is, is... is a cool thing, uh, especially if you love the cabaret. Um, right now, I think our roster of volunteers are full, but that changes all the time. So if you just send an email to boxoffice at oregoncabaret.com and say, listen, I want to be a volunteer, we'll get back to you. That's great. So what's something that you wish more attendees knew? Uh, I wish everybody knew when they came that we're, we're a professional theater company. We hire professional actors from New York. We hire professional designers. All of our actors are paid a living wage. So I think sometimes we get lumped in with the, like, we're a non-OSF company, and we get lumped in with uh, the other theaters that are great in the community, but we're a fully professional theater company. You come to see a a show at at the Oregon Cabaret, I don't think you're going to feel this incredible drop-off from the shows at OSF. And I think that's what I want people to know, is that you come to show at the Cabaret, we employ a lot of people in the Valley, we pay our artists a living wage, and that's something some people are surprised about. Even even to this day, even though it's been around for 30 years, and that's been true for a while, some people go, "Oh, I I didn't know that the actors you know get paid here." Like so that that is something I I would love for people to be more aware of. Wow, yeah, I could see maybe because of the smaller venue or something, people tend to think it's a community. Yeah. but as soon as you see a show, I think it's pretty obvious <laughs> that it's next. Well, thank you. Next level. So let's shift gears a little and talk about the Rogue Valley. I yeah. like to ask everyone who's on the podcast, yeah. um, if you have friends or family visiting and it can't be a play, <laughs> what's yes. something you would tell them to go do? Uh, Immigrant Lake. Uh, I love Immigrant Lake. Like we, we go out on the lake and we do the water slides. And even though it's six minutes from my house, we'll occasionally camp there because it's sort of fun just to, you know, instead of setting up a tent in your backyard, you go out to Immigrant Lake. Uh so I tell people to check that out because it's good and close to where we live. Um, I always tell people to see Lithia Park. You know, I know that we're known for OSF, and but like we have a beautiful public park, and people just like I will occasionally walk out of my office. I'm stressed. I walk two minutes, and I'm in the heart of Lithia Park, and I'm just walking these quiet trails and just breathing. And it's su- it's such a nice thing that that I think people who live here take for granted because in LA. I walk down the street and I'm at a strip mall and I walk down another mile and I'm another, another strip mall. Right. So it's just like, you can take that for granted, but man, Lithia Park's beautiful and everybody who comes here should, should take a stroll through it. So what's your favorite breakfast spot in the Valley? You know, I think, I think I, I'm going to give a different answer than most. I love Greenleaf's breakfast. Okay. Uh, chicken I've apple sausage. I've already gotten Greenleaf ones. 
Oh, you mm-hmm. have? Yeah. Interesting, because I figure Morning Glory, which right. I do like, gets, yeah, they get, get a lot. Yeah, for sure. Brothers <laughs> gives a great breakfast, but I find when I'm just going out and I, I want a breakfast like whole wheat toast and chicken apple sausage and the way they do their eggs and potatoes, yeah. I, I like it there meat. a lot. What about dinner? Oh, wow. I think I think I'm split between Alchemy if I want to go someplace nice and... Smithfields, if I want a steak, I think those are those are my neighbors. But still, they're like they're two of my favorite joints in town. Amuse, man, I, I man, I love the eating in Ashland. If I had if I had all the money in the world, I would eat at all these places all the time. I know we're so lucky with the restaurant scene here. Yeah. And then what about a place to get drinks? Uh, you know, I like um, man. The name escapes me. The the spirits, liquid assets. Oh yeah, liquid assets. Uh, you know, down down at the other side near the plaza is is a place. It's just really comfortable to get a drink, hang out, and talk. I think that'd be my favorite place. And then I don't know if you get many days off, but <laughs> if you do, what's your favorite thing to do? Uh, you know, when I get swashes of time off, I spend time with my daughter. You know, my daughter, she's ten, and she's at an age where she still really loves spending time with with me. So like. When I get time off, we do adventures. You know, we, we get out of the city, we go to Immigrant Lake, you know, we go see movies. Like, you know, my job requires a lot of me, and that occasionally is tough on my kid because, you know, the, the, anything that falls through the cracks is something I have to do. And so my daughter will sometimes feel that. She'll feel that, like, I'm not the most important thing. So when I have time, I, you know, it's family time and, uh, I, you know, I volunteer, I coach your soccer team. And so I, fun. I try very hard to be dad first and everything else second. So, yeah. So are there any changes that you'd like to see in the Rogue Valley? Uh, that's interesting. Uh, I sure would like to see, uh, uh, a stop to white nationalism in the Rogue Valley. That's something we sort of, that sort of reared its head, you know, the cabaret early last year. Uh, How so? I, I'm not familiar with that. Well, we had, uh, we had somebody come and post like a flyer on our door. We were involved in this thing called the Ghost Light Project. Uh, and I don't know whether it was just in real life trolling or whether what it was, but someone came the middle of the night and posted a flyer that was sort of, you know, uh, a white nationalist flyer. And, um, it just was sort of shocking and scary because you're in Ashland. You sort of feel like this is a, this is an enclave of acceptance. And so to sort of have that, that, that thing happen was startling and yeah, a little surprising. scary. So, um, I think, you know, I think there's a strain of that here in the Northwest that I, I think surprises people, but it is there. And so, yeah. Um, I don't know if that's the answer I wanted to give. I guess, I guess that's, I guess, yeah. I debated whether to even ask people that question, you know, because I think in general, the podcast is meant to be like a really um, feel good thing and like raising up our community and the different aspects of it. And then you kind of throw in this curveball, which opens the door to some of the things that aren't so great about our people community. People have very, very strong opinions about about the deer and how to, how <laughs> right. to deal with homelessness because yeah. I feel like it's a compassionate community. Right. Um, but they, you know, they struggle with the, as soon as commerce says, hey, we don't want to 
see as many folks uh, really aggressively panhandling on the streets, then the city takes an, an action that seems counter to its compassionate nature. And so people are very passionate about that. They're very passionate about the deer. Uh, mm-hmm. Fiscal responsibility is a thing that, you know, I... Uh, it's a thing that surprises me that I'm suddenly into, but the city was going to introduce an entertainment tax because, you know, it needs money to pay for more police officers. And so suddenly you feel like I wish the city would spend its money a bit more responsibly. So they didn't need to come to the theaters and potentially impact both my business and tourism to OSF in order to make ends meet. So that's suddenly a thing that became, that surprised me that it became, I mean, it was going to affect me personally. So it became a thing that I cared about. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know about that either. Yeah. Huh. So where are they at with that? Now? Well, they, you know? they, they went with sort of a joint approach of taxing the, a, a transit occupancy tax. So essentially taxing the hotels a little bit more, uh, which that impacts tourism too. And, uh, Taxing utilities so that, you know, everybody pays like a dollar more per month in utilities or something. Okay. Neither of those things were popular, but they were there. I, I was there at the council meeting where they went, well, we were hiring these officers and we must pay for them. Yeah. Somewhere. So yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't envy their, I don't envy them having to make those decisions because I'm watching them do it and I have my stake but they're going to make somebody mad, and that's just the reality. Right. They're either going to tell, right. they're either going to tell Chief Ty that you can't have more police, or they're going to tell constituents that they're going to pay a little more in utilities. It's like it's tough, you know. You sort of understand why it is that 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 job is pressurized. Yeah. So on a lighter note, <laughs> yes. What event do you look forward to most in the area? You know, I'm a theater guy, and so everything the thing that charges me up most is the opening of the OSF season. Like, we'll get an invite to come to opening, and it's the unveiling of all this new art and shows that could push the boundaries, and later win Tonys, and new interpretations of Shakespeare. And that's, I think it's just one, of, it's, it's a magical thing to be one of the first to experience all that. I live in town now, and I could just... I can get the first glimpses of all of these amazing pieces of art. And I know I run a theater and I'm pitching my own place. This is a great place, but man, I love, I love the opening of the the Shakespeare festival. It's just like, it's magic to be one of the first people to experience those things. And it's something, you know, I came up as a young actor. I studied theater at UC Davis. I would make trips up with my girlfriend at the time to see shows and it was like, that's all I wanted. I wanted to do theater in Ashland. That was it. Like, I want to do theater in Ashland. Wow. You know, it wasn't like fame, fortune, success. I wanted to, this is what I love to do. And so being a small part of that, the theater community in Ashland, and being able to go and experience the the Shakespeare Festival opening its season is, is something I really, really love. That's great. And it's also just so cool that you have come full circle. Yeah. Now you're doing theater in Ashland. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't lie. It's we, we really we really found a thing, both Valerie and I, that, that we love and a community that we love. Well, congrats. I love Thank hearing you. that. <laughs> uh, so just to, to head off here, where can listeners learn more about the Oregon Cabaret Theater? So you go to our website, OregonCabaret.com. Uh, you can, you know, learn more about the shows there, see our full season. You can even, you know, uh, reserve tickets there. You can call our box office at four, uh, 541-488-2902. 
a lot of times a call is actually best for us because we have a lot of things to go through with dinner reservations and guiding you through what you might want to see. So our box office is open 11 to 5. Give us a call. Visit our website. Okay, good to know. Well, thanks so much again, Rick, for being on the show. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Rogue Local. And a huge thanks to those of you who have subscribed to the show or left a review on iTunes. If you'd like to chat with me directly, you can DM the show on Instagram or email me through the website. The URL is www.theroguelocal.com. Support for The Rogue Local is provided by our family-owned dental office, Soul Smile, located in Ashland. We are always accepting new patients, and you can learn more about the office by going to www.soulsmile.com. Music featured on this episode is titled Sometime by Scott Grayton from the FMA via Creative Commons license. So I have some exciting interviews in the works, but I'm actually planning on switching up the format for next episode, so you'll have to tune in to see what I'm up to. I'm Ryan Cavell, and you've been listening to The Rogue Local.